Sussman's hilarious breakout rom-com, Funny You Should Ask, is a witty romance built around the whole question and dynamic of celebrity journalism. Ten years ago, Charney interviewed Hollywood star Gabe. He was at that time the next James Bond. And the story she wrote about him then has haunted her career ever since. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and on Binge Reading Today, Alyssa talks about setting up her James Bond character in Funny You Should Ask, the particular challenges faced by women pursuing careers in Hollywood, and her own remarkable experiences managing big film animation projects, including The Crudes, Hotel Transylvania and Tangled for some of the top studios. In our free giveaway, a group of author friends have got together for another historical romance book offer. Take your pick of a wide choice in historical romance for summer. Links in the binge reading show notes for this episode as for all of the other content of this episode. And don't forget, you can get exclusive bonus content like hearing Alyssa's answers to the five quick five questions by becoming a binge reading on patreon supporter for the cost of less than a cup of coffee a month we've got a new feature starting on patreon this month encore once a month short chats with authors who've already been on the show talking about their latest exciting release first up in the second week of june is popular international author jill paul talking about The Collector's Daughter, her new dual-timeline novel about the fascinating life of Lady Evelyn Herbert, the English aristocrat who made history by being part of the first ever global media sensation, the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, as well as enjoying the cachet, having grown up at Highclere, the majestic manor house that is the location for the Downton Abbey TV series. But now here's Alyssa. Hello there, Alyssa, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Look, you wrote three teen novels, but then you got into your, what they are calling your breakout hit, your first adult novel, Funny You Should Ask. And it's a witty romance built around the whole dynamic of celebrity journalism. Tell us, how did you make that leap from the earlier teen novels to this adult novel that's being so widely acclaimed? Well, thank you. I, it's funny because it feels like a very natural progression. In some ways, I'm like, why did it take me so long to write a, a romance and an adult, an adult romance at that? I grew up reading romance, loving romance. I, since middle school, I think I was just like a huge romance reader, getting books from the library constantly. And then during kind of a lull in work, when I was writing YA fiction, I got uh, an opportunity to ghostwrite adult romance books. And it kind of reminded me of how much fun I had reading it as a teenager and how much I missed it. And so it was this great kind of like getting paid to go to romance writing boot camp. 
And once, once I sort of got into that more and more, I was like, oh, well, why don't I, why don't I write my own romance? Like, why don't I try this on my own? <laughs> Amazing. So how many romance novels did you ghostwrite? About 15. Oh, that's a huge apprenticeship. <laughs> <laughs> It was, yeah, about over a five-year period. It was about 15, 15 books. And what kind of romance were those? Was it a wide range of, of heat levels? They were pretty spicy romances, all contemporary, all the kind of books that you're going to get on like a Kindle Unlimited type type ebook situation, but like really, really fun. They would send me really detailed outlines and I would just go to town and just have a great time writing them. Oh, that's fantastic. But this one that we're talking about today, Funny You Should Ask, it's a dual timeline story and there's a 10-year gap between an initial interview that Chani has with a Hollywood star. It's an interview which is remarkably intimate and personal and it goes viral. And after that, wherever she goes, she's really followed by the reputation of this uh, a viral interview. And the, the kind of hint and implication that she must have done something over and above the normal odds to be able to get such a good interview, i.e. she must have slept with the Hollywood star. And it's just very annoying for her that her whole future seems to be predicated on this one interview. Now, I guess that does happen in Hollywood, doesn't it? Yeah, I think women are, in particular, are held to this impossible standard a lot of times of where you your real life must be reflected in your work. You know, there, there's not this sense of like, oh, women can can compartmentalize and do different things. It's like, no, we we if we write about it, it must be real. We must have experience with it. Yes, that's right. And the same standard doesn't apply to the men, even if she had so-called slept with Gabe, which she hadn't. If a man slept with a female journalist, nobody would think a thing of it, would they? Probably not. I think, yeah, I think we just, you know, everywhere it's double standards, especially with sex and relationships and what men can get away with is very, very different than what women can get away with, certainly. Even even in this time of Me Too, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Me Too has just sort of like shined a light on it, but we're still seeing people who've been, these men who have been accused of these horrible things things going on and winning awards and continuing on with their career. You know, no one's really been canceled. No one's lost their job. They just sort of go away for a few years and then they come back and make jokes about it and then everyone's fine. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Now your, your um, male hero in this, Gabe, he was chosen as, as the quote's latest James Bond, but he was very much a kind of second choice in a lot of people's minds. And so he's living with a kind of heavy weight on his shoulders of having to prove himself. And there are very good reasons, which we're not going to divulge, why the number one choice didn't actually get the role, um, which once again is, is a commentary on the way Hollywood works, isn't it? We won't, as I say, spoil the story, but... Um, <laughs> You have to read it to find out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There are certain things that Hollywood doesn't shine the light on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that there still is more difficulty for women in Hollywood, even with people like my fellow countryman Jane Campion recently getting the best director at the Oscars? Is it still harder for women? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think any progress is great progress, you know, but it's still very incremental. You know, we are very happy to celebrate 
another woman getting an Academy Award, but she's, I think, the third female director to to get it. And how many awards have been have been passed out? Like, unless it's unless it is equal 50-50, then we're not even, we're not even close. Or or quite honestly, like more women than men. Let's yeah. reverse it. You know, they've had they've had their spotlight for so long. Like, let's make let's make more room for women. But I guess that they, they could argue the other way that there are still more male directors, aren't there? Well, yeah. I mean, because that's the way they've they've set up the system. You know, it's a self perpetuating cycle of men giving other men opportunities and not giving you know men mentoring men, men supporting men, helping their friends out, and then women are kind of shut out of that, and they don't you know they're aren't those opportunities, there aren't those mentors available to women necessarily. Yeah, yeah. When you were researching this book about Gabe and Shani, I had this feeling that you must have spent a lot of time online on celebrity websites. How did you go about researching it? Well, I mean, I live I live in Los Angeles and I used to, I used to work in animation and my husband and a lot of his friends are filmmakers and work in the film industry. So I've always had like an, you know, a little bit of a window into that world. And certainly I think most people read or get, you know, have access to celebrity culture and gossip culture. And it's, it's fun to like read and examine that. So, I mean, it wasn't, I, I don't even think I would consider it research. It's just, you know, I was just reading for fun and then it would bleed into what I was writing. Yes. I mean, I must say that probably in your world, it would be hard to avoid such, um, <laughs> such true, information. True. Yeah. I was fascinated about your earlier career in animation because you worked for many of the really big studios, Disney, DreamWorks and Nickelodeon. Tell us a bit about that world and how you got into that world in the beginning. Yeah. I've always loved animated movies. I've been a big, big animated movie fan since since I was a kid. And when I was in college, I remember thinking, oh, it'd be so much fun to work in animated film, like on animated films, but I'm not a visual artist at all. I can't draw. And I ended up watching a lot of the when when like movies were still sort of being released on like DVD and and Blu-ray, I would they'd have all these special features. And a lot of them were like behind the scenes documentaries. And I would watch those. And that's how I learned that, oh, there are all these jobs that don't require you to be an artist that you can have if you work in animation. And that was kind of a big jumping off point for me to be like, oh, okay, so I can I can manage artists. This is great. I'm a very organized person. So I think this would be a really, really fun job. And that's kind of how I got into it and really loved it. And because I spent so many years learning how to manage other artistic personalities, when it came time to me sort of focusing on my own work, it was easier to manage myself because I'd sort of already learned like how you write a schedule for an artist, like how you schedule out your like stuff that feels like it should feel like it should be organic and creative, but you still need schedules and you still need guidelines. And so it made it a lot easier to transition into a freelance uh, mindset. And so when you say you managed artists, you some of the people you would have been managing were the people, the, the big artists who were doing the voiceovers for those movies? Yeah. I mean, I, for, for Tangled in particular, that was, that was my job. I was in the editorial department. So it was a lot of interacting with 
um, the actors that were coming in to work on the film. I actually was one of one of the like weird perks sort of of the job is that you get um, if they need someone to do scratch, which is like temporary vocals, and you are a young woman who's the closest in age to the actress playing the main character, you're going to get called in to provide vocals and <laughs> embarrass yourself in front of your entire team. And so I, I was, I had lines in the movie for Tangled for a while until they could bring Mandy Moore in to replace me. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Did you also develop an understanding of plotting and storylines and things when you were associated with that job? I mean, I'm sure you probably picked it up from osmosis, but did you actually work in any of the aspects where you they were doing the plotting and the story development? Not so much. I was much more on the side of management and less on the creative side of things. But you, yeah, you definitely pick up just, just being in contact with all of these storytellers you learn about storytelling and I'm very curious and I, and I ask a lot of questions and I'm, you know, really interested. So I would, I would, I would talk to the directors. I would talk to some of the animators, to the editors and just would learn a lot, a lot from them for sure. Yeah. What would you say that the biggest lessons you took away from that world into your writing, what were the things that perhaps stayed with you after you'd left that world when you were back into writing? I mean, I think the thing that I learned, the thing about animation that I love that I actually miss the most in writing is that it's so collaborative and writing is so solitary. So I do, I like miss the sort of the collaborative aspect of it, but it does, it makes you realize it's really important when you get to a certain point in your work to reach out and get feedback from other people. And, and to embrace the collaborative aspect whenever you can and to get input from people you trust and, and then ignore the input that is not helpful and that you're, you don't agree with. That's interesting because I was going to ask you if you'd had any important writing mentors. How do you find that sort of feedback? Do you rely on your editors in the publishing house or do you have other ways of getting it? I have a lot of really wonderful writing colleagues. The YA world was really wonderful in introducing me to other writers and finding them has been so instrumental in, you know, not only sharing the work that you're doing, but commiserating with, you know, about the process and about the heartaches and all the joys that happen with writing and being a professional writer. So it's been really, really great to have a community of, of colleagues that I can lean on. And as far as mentors, I'm always on the, on the lookout for mentors, certainly. The closest I think I have my, I have a very close relationship with my agent, Elizabeth Bewley, and I love working with her. And she used to work in, she used to be an editor before she became an agent. And so she, her just wealth of knowledge has been incredible to tap into. And she is just a dear friend and someone I trust completely, which is not always an easy thing to find in any kind of <laughs> field like writing. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned process. Tell us something about your writing process and has it developed over this very long career, really, for you know, perhaps coming up to 20 books you will have done by now. Has it changed um, over that time? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm learning more and more 
that I don't have a process <laughs> because every time I start a new book, I'm just, you know, it feels like I'm doing it for the first time. And every time I think I've figured something out, I start a new project and that doesn't work. So I have to adjust and I have to change. And every single book has been different, has felt different, has evolved in a different way. And so it's, it's, a, it's a constant learning experience. Wow. And that would be the case even with the romance novels. Yeah. When I was ghostwriting, that was a little more consistent. And it was, it was really about just working to a schedule and getting the word count in and following the guidelines. And, but it was a really, like, it wasn't as sort of creative on the page, but it was a really good experience in just learning how to structure something, learning and learning how to work to a deadline. Like that was so instrumental. Yeah. Yeah. Give us an idea of what a typical writing day looks like. You know, you do sound like you're a very organized person. Do you have a word count or a certain number of hours or how do you structure a typical working day? Yeah, I try I try to to keep sort of office hours. I have I have an office that I that I go to. I'm an I'm an early riser. I have two dogs so they don't really give me a choice to not be an early riser. I'm up pretty early and I usually try to be at my desk for most of the day. I'm in Los Angeles. Most of the people I work with are in New York. So I try to keep New York hours kind of. So that's like that sort of ends at three o'clock my time is when New York shuts down. And so I try to just be at my desk and available in case people, you know, have something that they need from me or they have a question. I like to sort of, you know, I have my like dual monitors. I think you have the dual monitor set up as well. <laughs> and I have sort of my writing on one monitor and then my email on the other. And I'm just constantly, you know, working and then I'm checking and then I'm working. And I try to like if I'm on. If I'm drafting, I usually have a word count schedule where I say, okay, I want to finish this book by this date. I want to have a a first draft by this date. My first drafts are usually this amount of words and I have this many days. So it's like a little bit of like math and you're like, okay. So so it's usually somewhere between like a thousand to 2000 words a day is is like my average. Yes. And, and I, and I try to, I try to work first thing in the morning, but sometimes it happens much later and I'm working late into the evening. Um, but I, I do try to just hit those, those goals whenever I put them out there for myself. And do you make a lot of rewrites when you, when you go to the second draft? It depends. With my last two books, with Funny and with Drawn That Way, which is the YA that came out before that, they were pretty clean, those first draft. Those first drafts were were very clean in a way that I don't think will happen again. So I didn't have a lot of revisions. But the book I'm working on right now, which is the next book in my in my contract with Random House, is probably going to be a lot messier. I'm probably going to have to do much more extensive revisions once I get into it. Sure. You mentioned your last book, Drawn That Way, and it has similarities with the themes in. Um, funny you should ask, doesn't it? It's really about a young woman trying to realize her identity and and her purpose in life, and perhaps at a younger, slightly younger age group than the adult novel, but similar themes, isn't it? Yeah, I actually, I consider them sister books in a lot of ways. I wrote them very close together. 
I edited them almost simultaneously. So, and, and they, exactly like you said, they are very, very similar themes. I feel like they're both stories about women trying to find their voice, um, to find their place in an industry that's maybe not as welcoming. There's themes of love and themes of, of partnership and what you look for in partnership, what you look for, you know, what women look for in, in the men in their lives. But yeah, they do feel like they, I think they were me working out the same sort of themes in two different stories. Mm, mm. Turning away perhaps a little from the specific books to your wider career, is there one thing that you would see as the secret of your success and your creative side of life? And if so, what would that be? Oh, I don't know if I have a secret. <laughs> I think it's just, I think it's just stubbornness. I think I am, I am a very stubborn person. I've had, a, there have been a lot of instances in my career where there have been a great opportunity to just leave, <laughs> to, you know, where you see it, you see those, those doors in front of you and five out of six of them are like, well, here's your exit. You could take this door. And then the one door that's like, well, this could lead you somewhere interesting, maybe, but it's locked. So good luck. I'm like, well, I'm going to, that's the door I'm going to go for, for sure. Um, I think the thing that's been the most life-changing or career-changing for me is, is I mentioned, you know, my, my agent, Elizabeth, I signed with her. She was my, she's my third agent. And I signed with her in January of 2020 and working with her has just been amazing. I, I would say for any writers at that stage, if you can find the agent that gets your work on a really fundamental level and is, you know, your agent should be your champion. And it's, it's very much a, like I have my agents I had before Elizabeth were wonderful. Like I have no complaints about them and they um, were delightful to work with just wonderful, kind, smart women, but the chemistry wasn't the same with Elizabeth. Like our, it's, it's just, it's, it feels magical. And I, I just completely trust her. I feel like she is in my corner. I can throw anything at her and she will be honest, but kind about what she thinks about it. And so when you have someone like that, you really feel like you can do anything. It's very nice to hear someone who, you know, has had the degree of books published for starters that you have and ha and acknowledges that you've had lots of knockbacks because I think people who are coming up the track a little bit behind you who maybe are at book two or three and still not finding they're getting a lot of traction that's probably about the point in a career where they start to ask themselves is it worth pushing on is am I just either not meant to do this or you know is it just too hard so it's it's really encouraging I think for others to get that feeling that you have had those doors shut on your face along the way. Oh yeah, certain. I mean, I've had, it's, it's been really rough for, for several years and funny in particular is the first book I feel like where I'm being seen by my community, by the writing community. And I'm being acknowledged for the work I've been doing and, and just being seen in general. But it, yeah, before that it was, it was, you know, years of feeling like I was putting the work in and, and just not being seen or acknowledged. So it's been, but that's sometimes just what happens. It's timing and it's persistence and it's going to, it goes up, it goes down, you know, who knows what will happen with the next book. Yeah. I guess 
that's part one of the pitfalls of being a ghostwriter too, isn't it? That <laughs> in a way you have to stay in the shadows. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I, I really enjoyed it. I think it was because it's, you do have to stay in the shadows, but then you kind of get a, you know, look at publishing from the sidelines, you know, yes. you get to sort of observe a lot of how the world works and kind of walk away from it. If it's a little like, you know, like I've only had great experiences. I, you know, all of my experiences with ghostwriting were really positive, but there is that freedom of, well, you know, if it's, if it's not perfect, my name's not on it. So it's okay. <laughs> it's a lot of, there's a little freedom there, which is nice. <laughs> We're taking a short break and we'll be back with Alyssa soon. Sadie's Vow, a historical mystery with a heart of romance, is Jenny Wheeler's first in a new trilogy. It launches on June 10 and is available at a special launch price of $1.99 at all ebook stores. Newly minted Austrian Count Dolphy Westerhoven and a mysterious woman he meets on the train are drawn into a deadly conflict with San Francisco gangs. Pre-order it today at Amazon.com or JennyWheeler.biz. And now we're back with Alyssa Sussman. When you started out writing, what was your main goal in, in those first early years? And have you reached it yet? I mean, my main goal, I just wanted to publish a book. That was that was as far as I sort of thought. And I'm I feel really, really lucky that like not only have I accomplished that, but like I've now I'm four four books later still doing it. Like and for now, I like I think my my goal is to just continue to write, to 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 continue to to work on books and to produce material that allows me to just keep going and keep going and keep going yeah. and keep going. Yeah. We are the joys of binge reading. We always like to ask our guests about their reading habits and if they've got any books that they'd like to recommend to listeners, particularly in the popular fiction area, which is where we kind of specialize. What do you like to read? Are you a binge reader as such? And what would you recommend for other people? I mean, I think the binge reading thing comes from extending from the binge watching. Once people got into <laughs> binge watching, they then thought binge reading was a pretty good idea too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I've been a romance reader forever and I feel like romance readers are all, like we are the binge readers of the literary world. Like you if you are a romance reader and you find an author that you like, you are going online, you are buying their entire backlist and you're just, re you know, like the great joy of, of finding a new book and then finding out that that author has written like 25 others is yeah. the best feeling ever. Yeah. I mean, I'm super, super, as far as like books that I would recommend, I'm really excited for this book, Birds of California by Katie, Katie Catugno, which comes out at the end of April. Katie is a friend of mine. Um, she's also a YA writer who's who's moving into the adult space, but she's she's just an incredible, incredible writer. And it's also a Hollywood romance. Ah. So if you like my book, I think you'll love hers. Yeah, I, lo um, I love books which, which are into the journalism space because I used to work in journalism myself. So I oh, enjoy that, that whole field, yeah. Yeah, so so I highly recommend her her book. My friend Kate Spencer had a book come out recently called In a New York Minute, which is a very like sweet Nora Ephron like New York love story. My sort of my my go-to like writers with a really large backlist. I really love Julianne Long's um 
like she has multiple series. She mostly writes historical romance, but there's something about her style of writing that is especially appealing to me that just feels very, very elevated in exactly the way I want it to be. Yeah. And there's, it's just, it feels very romantic and fun. And she just has a sense of humor that I, I really like. So those are some like authors that I'm, I, those are my like automatic buys. Alicia Ray is also an author who has a new book coming out. I don't remember the title, but I mean, she's a wonderful backlist as well. So I highly recommend checking her out. Wonderful. Thank you, my dear. Thank you. That's lovely. Looking down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your creative career that you'd change, what would it be? I don't know if I'd change anything because I like, I think if you'd asked me maybe two years ago, I would have been like, well, this and this and this and this. But I think now I, I look at my career and I'm like, well, things didn't maybe work out the way I wanted to with my first few books. But that experience got me to the place where I am now. And I'm really happy where I am now. And if I had done it differently, like, I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have ended up with the agent I ended up with. I don't know if I would have ended up with the editor I ended up with. Like it all just the timing right now has just worked out in such a way that I am just like, well, I guess everything that happened before had to have happened in order to get me here. That's fantastic. What is next for you as a writer over the next 12 months looking ahead? uh, What are people going to see from you and what are you working on now? So I'm working on my next adult novel, which I'm very excited about. I'm going to hopefully be turning that in very soon, my first draft. So it'll be It'll be brand new to my editor, to my agent. We are sort of moving ahead on that. I think the idea is that it's going to come out um, in spring 2023. And that's another romance? It's another romance sort of dealing with similar themes of our obsession with celebrity and parasocial relationships with celebrities. I think there's going to be some fun timeline stuff and interstitial stuff as well. So people who like funny, I think it will be a really good companion book. Even though it will not have the same characters, it will feel written in the same yeah. vein, the same yeah. style. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my focus and just continuing to try to, to get everyone I know to read Funny You Should Ask. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Do you enjoy interacting with readers and where can they find you online? I love interacting with readers. I am sporadically online. I'm on Twitter very rarely, and I'm on Instagram more than I'm on Twitter. And both, I think, are just Alyssa Sussman or Alyssa underscore Sussman. But if if you look me up, I'm I think I'm the only one. Um, and yeah, and please, if you are reading and enjoying the book, I love to hear from readers. It's always it's always nice to talk about books with people. That's fantastic, Alyssa. Thank you so much for your time today. Wonderful. Thank you. Next week on The Joys of Binge Reading, we have Erica Roebuck and her international best-selling World War II drama about two very different women, both working behind enemy lines in Nazi-occupied France. Sisters of Fog and Night, featured next week on the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can be sure not to miss out on Erica Roebuck next week.